This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. We could talk about bugs. We talked about talking about bugs. I hate bugs. I've killed so many bugs just today. <laughs> only, even only today. I went downstairs to get this beer that I got, and my little my gnat trap had got a gnat already. Oh got man! One. Can you see it in there? Yeah, it's just it's drowned. Do you want to know how it works? Do you know how it works? It Is works. it? It's science. Is it a bottle with a like a paper funnel in it? That's one way you can do it. My way is is. You, if anything, even more ingenious. Okay, is you put in some water and some apple cider vinegar and a little sugar into a bowl. You mix it all together. Then you put a little bit of soap in there. Ooh, just a little bit of soap in there. And then the gnats are like, "Hmm, this smells good because it smells like rotten fruit, kind of a little." <laughs> and they fly on up to it and they're like, "Yeah, I'll just land on this water and I'll drink and eat and it'll be great." But the soap, the dish soap in there, has broken the surface tension of the water. And then that just falls in and it drowns. Whoa. Yeah. Bill Nye, the bug killing guy over yeah. here. It's a honey pot. It's literally a hun- Well, there's not honey in it, so I guess not literally a Welcome honey pot. Welcome to but Andrew's it's like apple one. cider pot. Other what bugs, I just kill by smushing them. That's wise. Which is not science unless you're talking about like kinetic energy, I guess. <laughs> the potential energy of your fist punching a bug. Yes. Got punch those bugs. Punch them. Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the bugs you've been meaning to squish. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And this is our quote unquote July bonus episode <laughs> that <laughs> we are of July. <laughs> record. We are uh, we've extended the month of, month of July. We got dispensation from the calendar people to uh, record this episode and still say that it was July. Yeah, you know some people record do like a christmas in july we do july in august it's a similar similar, similar phenomenon yeah um, so we're recording this while some of our lovely patreon donors uh listen or watch in hmm. um and some of them can catch the archive of that video a little bit later but we wouldn't be doing this episode at all if it weren't for the rest of our patreon donors including them so thanks thanks y'all and in particular, we wouldn't be talking about this week's book, 1004 by Ben Lerner, if not for one of our donors, Luke, who suggested it to us. So we're going to talk about that today. If you are watching, you can uh, hop in the chat, say hi, ask us questions along the way. Mm-hmm. If you are listening after the fact in what might be August, you can send us questions via emails and Facebook and all that good stuff. So the normal ways. The normal ways. So I had never heard of this book before Luke suggested it, Andrew. Um, but he talked briefly about it in his email to us. Um, that it is set between the two recent like New York City superstorms. Um, and you recently lived up in you lived up in that area during that time period, so I imagine Sandy we'll talk about and that. Irene it's between I, okay, great, yeah, Irene and Sandy. So we'll talk about that. And he he also uh, talked about how the book's like unconventional structure is also informed by a lot of the artwork that is referenced in the film, uh, in, in the book, excuse me, including uh, Christian Marclay's The Clock, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, is there anything about Ben Lerner that you found that you definitely want to hit, Andrew? There's not a lot of stuff. I mean, he's just a guy who writes books. and <laughs> How weird. <laughs> yeah, he was born in 1979, um, he's an American poet, novelist, essayist, and a critic. He's been a Fulbright scholar. He was a finalist for the National Book Award, which I take to mean he did not win it. And, you know, some <laughs> other stuff. He's a MacArthur Fellow currently, I think, among yeah, a few other he, accolades. He won a major poetry prize for his sonnet cycle, The Lichtenberg Figures, 
uh, and he was a poet first, and that gets referenced in this book. Um, and this, it seems like his other novel, his first novel, Leaving the Ataka Station, both overlap a little bit with who Ben Lerner is as both a person and a character. Um, it seems like this book is perhaps, a, a, I don't know much about Otoka Station, but it sounds like this book uh, certainly borrows a lot from like actual Ben Lerner's life um, in that he is a guy who's a writer, who's a poet and a novelist in Brooklyn. Oh boy, this sounds like my favorite thing. <laughs> this does sound like your favorite thing. Um, excerpts from this book uh, appeared in the Paris Review. Uh, one chapter is a short story that Ben Lerner wrote for The New Yorker and then got picked up and turned into a full book, sort of? Sort of like adaptation, I think, like that movie adaptation where Charlie Kaufman was like, what if I turned this book about uh, Orchid Thief into a movie about being unable to turn this book into a movie? A way to to make <laughs> failure into success. Uh, and so this book has one review from The Independent, I believe, falls into a genre of male authors that uh, write a, ver- a, quote, virtuoso confession of their own inadequacies. And, like, I feel like I read, I often get stuck with reading that kind of book. Yes. Because in the same way that you often get stuck with with reading our fantasy fiction. Mm -hmm. And I think I just figured for my sake and for our (laughs) listeners' sake, it was probably better to let somebody read it who is gonna who's inclined to give it more benefit of the doubt. Sure. Or just like not talk about how they hated the process of reading it the whole time. (laughs) So let me I'm just gonna read you the first chap the first not the whole first chapter. The the first chapter. All right, that should get us to about an hour. That's <laughs> it's actually for for a book that is like from the modern literary landscape and at least one review I think this is the LA book review called quote a near perfect piece of literature um it's only 240 pages long it's not a very it's not like a doesn't feel like a magnum opus doesn't feel like he set out to write a, a capital I important book when you just kind of start wading into it are you saying all important books need to be long books? No, but I am I am drawing on uh like reading I did about the development process of Infinite Jest and its publication history and like the heft of it as basically a doorstop like speaks to a certain audience for literary fiction. Yeah, I guess like just it's it's a school of thought that says just keep giving them book until they take you seriously. <laughs> sure. And and I don't know that that's certainly not true of all of all the books that we've covered and there are, are quote unquote important books that we've covered that are not tomes. Um but one of the first things that struck me about this one is that for the clamor around it and for the clamor around learner, uh it is not a tome. But here's the first sentence, Andrew. The city had converted an elevated length of abandoned railway spur into an aerial greenway, and the agent and I were walking south along it in the unseasonable warmth after an outrageously expensive celebratory meal in Chelsea that included baby octopuses the chef had literally massaged to death. Ew. Yeah, ew. Of course, if I was going to... That would be the way I would want to go, I think. Massage to death? Yeah, like if I <laughs> if I was going to pick a way, I think that's how it would be. <laughs> yeah, that's... Uh, how would I, I want to go? Like to, I would like to relax until I was all the way 100% relaxed. Is there a death. version of being killed by pillows that doesn't involve suffocating? I don't think so, unless you just got like pillow fight related blunt force trauma, which doesn't sound great either. It would have to be like instant, though. I don't want to be well, like it would be one of those really dense, like throw pillowy kind of things where you're supposed to like look at them more than use them. Do you remember when you first learned that those pillows with the arms are called husbands? Uh, It was right. 
now. So yes, I do remember <laughs> the first time that anybody told me that. It's weird, right? Who they call them, that? you know, the rubber things that, that you get to help you open pickle jars. Apparently those are called rubber husbands. Ew. Oh, no. I don't want to talk about that anymore. Rubber uh-huh. husbands. Yeah, rubber husbands. That's like a thing you buy on the dark web is a rubber husband. <laughs> so this sentence <laughs> sets up. Uh, that we are, uh, you know, a couple things. A, you can get a sense of the pros just from that sentence. That is a long sentence that kind of winds its way through a couple of different things. Sure. That's telling us, like, his take on, or giving us a sense of, like, repurposing of parts of New York City. Um, The agent and I, okay, so it's about Ben Lerner, the novelist. Unseasonable warmth, climate change, and, like, Superstorm stuff does factor into this book. Um, and then the kind of, for lack of a better word, masturbatory nature of like high literature, high art, uh, as a commercial endeavor Mm -hmm. is a a current of the entire book. So he's gotten a, the, the author, the narrator of this novel that is called 1004, um, is going to get a huge six figure advance for purportedly the novel that I, the reader am reading. You with me so far? Yes. Yep. Okay, cool. <laughs> and so chapter one of the book follows him. and intro- As, yeah, as okay. you tell me okay. this, you said it wasn't a plot book. I want you to be thinking as you tell me this, how is this not just turning, like not having any ideas into a book? Sure. That's fine. I don't know. Like, what is it? What is it saying other than I could not think of something else to write a book about? Mm, okay. Yeah, that's fine. I I will tr- attempt to do that. Okay, and that's I and realize I am coming at it from the <laughs> like the most unkind <laughs> position. Yeah, no, I know. Um, so the couple of things that get set up in the first chapter of the book, obviously that he's an author, he's working on this novel. Um, he has a he he is a successful poet. Uh, that wrote a very successful first novel. And it wasn't exactly a commercial success, but it was a critical success. So the uh, the publishing industry is happy to throw a bunch of money at him on the off chance that he garners them a bunch of awards. There is a, there is a a diatribe a little later in the novel, excuse me, where he talks about like the publishing industry kind of they know they make all their money off of vampire teen dramas, <laughs> but. And they also know that, like, the books that are quote-unquote good won't sell a lot of copies. But within the industry, it's very important to be the one with the most awards, et cetera, et cetera. That's, I don't think that podcasting has reached that point yet, but it's close. As Like, how, a, do, you, like, how do you mean? Like, so, uh, we, on your other podcast, on your TV podcast, there's a pretty good, like, back and You mean and Appointment forth. Television, the podcast about the TV you want to make time for? Yeah. That one. You can find out more at atvpodcast.com? Yes. <laughs> uh, did you pay for that spot? Weird. Um, they, <laughs> you guys talk about like highbrow versus lowbrow TV or like the, the trappings of prestige TV a lot. And like that's all the stuff that quote unquote, that like not quote unquote, that wins awards, whether or not it like is the most popular TV around. Um, you see it in the Academy Awards. You see it in. As in this book, you see it in in uh, the publishing industry. Um, so, I don't know. I, I that commercialism about and how that affects what we consider good or what we consider meaningful mm-hmm. um, is is important. Oh, you're trying to. I see what you're doing. Okay, I was trying to do a little bit of stealth marketing and <laughs> on the side in the chat, but I tried both www.atvpodcast.com. And then I also tried www the word dot ATV podcast the word dot com, <laughs> and it wouldn't let me do either. That's pretty good. They really they thought this through. They really thought this through. So think, like like, go ahead. The thing that I think it, he's talking about a little bit, and the way it like intersects with podcasting, I think there are a lot of um, businesses where you just throw a lot of stuff at the wall and see what sticks and hope that a couple successful things subsidize all of your unsuccessful experiments. Sure. 
Like, for example, I think I think that most podcasting networks have like one or two flagship shows. Yeah, that's true. And then the rest of the time you're just you're spending like trying out new kinds of programming and seeing what people like and, and trying to grow out new flagship shows. So you're not just reliant on two things for all your yeah. money and, and cachet. What, what I think is interesting about podcasts right now to stay on this tangent for a hot second is that there I listen to be self-absorbed <laughs> sounds like part of what talking about this book yeah, is. So let's true. just navel gaze for a minute is that it doesn't have a like there isn't a really important set of criticism or award landscape for podcasts yet. Like podcasts as a medium seem to have really gotten popular because there are fewer gatekeepers. Now you're still, there are still big networks. NPR still has a big presence. And there are awards, but they're all kind of in that, in that, that same milieu as like the Webbies, for instance, which is like more, uh, like it's something trying to be a gatekeeper, but then also you have to like pay into it to be considered at all. And it's, and it's, yeah, it's, I don't know. It's like a nice looking rubber stamp, but are actual people looking to that to, I think, to decide what to listen to? No, I don't think so. But so the Ben Lerner, the author in this book, um, he's going to make the second novel. He has ideas for what it might be. Um, and it's going to, not unlike this book, incorporate things from his life. So this, I came what across the term... What if it was about term, writing novels? Yeah, I came across the term autofiction in reading about this. And like, there's a bunch of authors that I didn't know about. So I'll have to do a little bit more research. But it's this, you know, this idea that like, I am writing a story where it is interesting to both me and then hopefully the reader that I am blending my life with the life of the character and it's it's like a da- it's not quite david sedaris level parody of your own life like i am i am telling you this thing as if it happened to me when actually it's 100% made up yeah whereas like i just saw that movie the big sick and that seems to be a pretty good example of this type of thing where like that is clearly a thing that he and his wife went through but he wasn't going to get it like made and distributed as a documentary. That's not interesting to him. So he made a fictionalized version of his life. Sure. Uh, this obviously has slightly more like high art aspirations in terms of its structure. But so he is going to make this novel that the the hook of it is, and this is part of the story that got published in the New Yorker, which is referenced in this novel. Weird. Um, is that this poet is going to, I know, he's going to fabricate a bunch of correspondence between himself and other important poets and, like, put that out there as part of who he is. And because it's all, like, email, no one can say whether or not it happened, but it, like, it makes the artist look more important to both his peer his or her peers and the reader right like other established artists are taking this person seriously so i should take them seriously too yes and that's like this whole like running beat is like this character in this story that the narrator is writing is like willing to fabricate a part of himself and the community in which he works to like he's he's fabricating a legacy or fabricating a like mature back catalog that will lend the actual things he wants to do weight. Um, and I, I was thinking about that just because like you see, I don't know when the cutoff is that we, what we stopped really writing letters and collecting letters, but I feel like we are going to reach a point in the next 10 years where like, important artists don't have a like letters collection i think yeah you're gonna see stuff that's like here's the collected iMessage transcripts (laughs) of whatever author is jonathan franzen on twitter like do we need to publish his twitter when people need to i mean maybe we just don't need to pay attention to his twitter but like yeah that's not even letters i feel like that's a sort of public correspondence sure almost but i I want i don't know if, if people have the same level of private correspondence anymore as artists well just well it's it's 
it it takes place in different forms. It's I think more controlled by and owned by companies than before because like a lot of conversation between you and like if somebody was going to do like an oral history of overdue the podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. Yes. Like Slack has a lot of that or like Google, Google has does. a lot of that. Yeah. Like like that's a lot that's where a lot of our correspondence about a specific thing happened rather than letters and so instead of being in a closet for somebody to discover when we are massaged to death <laughs> and people have to go through all of our things, it's like you you would have to do some kind of like, I don't, it's not a FOIA thing, I don't think. Some kind of request of Google to yeah, it wouldn't hand be a FOIA that thing. over. And, yeah. I, and I don't know that they are obligated to actually do that for anybody. No. no. It's, yeah, it's. Yeah, but just like yeah, just to to talk about correspondence in the modern era is is pretty weird. I yeah. don't know that it has anything to do with the book, like does it? It does in the sense that this book is concerned about uh thinking about the future and conflating it with the past. So like who is this guy Ben that he gets to like write this novel at all? He is concerned that he is like kind of a faux novelist and isn't really like a, a capable human. He's also recently been diagnosed with a dilated aortic root that uh, could within months or take years require him to have some pretty serious heart surgery. Sure. So he's kind of like terrified of his own mortality from the beginning of the book. Excuse me. And And the narrator in the story that he's making up uh goes under for like wisdom tooth surgery and discovers like a a corresponding like neurological condition so this kind of fear of okay if i just kick the bucket right now like what would i leave behind what what actually is me if i'm leaving things behind and what and like where is the line between stuff i could just like make up and get away with saying was me um, is one of the things he's really concerned about. So the closest thing to a plot that I would say is in this book uh, <laughs> are his relationships with other characters in the world. So one of the most important people in his life is his best friend, Alex. Um, he describes that he is a writer and she is unemployed. Uh, she went to school for like public service at NYU and has been underemployed or unemployed. Um, she's so you're both you're both unemployed. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, early in the book, <laughs> I say that with all the love in my heart for writers, <laughs> of which I am one. But <laughs> uh, she, you're only as employed as your most recent like freelancing. Contract. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I have. A, I will never forget a professor telling me you're not a director if you're not directing. Like you mm-hmm. can you can have done it, but if you're not doing it, then what are you? You're unemployed. Sure. Yeah. Um, they spend the two superstorms in this book. So the book opens with like Irene and closes with Sandy. I think this Irene, is what... as I recall, is the one that was not really yes. a big deal. Like people were prepping for it, but it sort of veered off yeah. far enough that we just got a bad rainstorm and that was it. Yeah. As I sure. recall. Um and Sandy was Sandy was worse. And we'll get we'll get into <laughs> that how that factors in this book. Mm-hmm. Um but so they spend that time together. They're not romantically close. But she, her mother has just been diagnosed with cancer and she is 36 and is really thinking that she would like to have a kid. And she tells Ben that she wants him to like help her have a kid. Not that they would have sex because that would be weird, but that he should like donate his sperm to the cause. Sure. Um, There's an interesting note about their relationship that he spends like a page or two on at the beginning of the book where they don't look at each other a lot. Like a lot of their friendship is walking places together or looking at things together, art or whatever it might be. Um, And when he thinks about spending time with her, he is always thinking about like whatever they were both looking at collectively, which then later when they, this is not a spoiler because the book doesn't have a plot. um, When they actively start, trying to have a baby and they're like supplementing the scientific medical process with like, let's try and have sex. Um, they actually have to like face each other and that, that kind of intimacy is different for them. Um, but the, that plot I think is important to this book in terms of like, it gives you a 
concrete version of a lot of the intellectual noodling around like the nature of art and creation because so on the one hand kind of what we were talking about with this like fabricated poetry letters nonsense is like who am i what can i make up what do i what ownership do i have over the things that i make up what will be left behind mm-hmm. sure and then on the other hand he's like okay if i help my friend have a baby am i the father am i actually like because they and they don't iron it out they sp- i mean like in the strictest sense of the word obviously yes but if you're not involved in like bringing it up then like in the practical sense of the word then no like, and it, it seems pretty easy but i get but, why they would grapple with it i guess well and it's it's unclear because she's not saying help me have a kid and then i'll never see you later like i'll never see you again but she's yeah, also a difference between like help me conceive a child and help me raise a child yes. that is important to make here. And and he actually comes to a realization in the book that he never asks her point blank. And the book, I think, is stronger for deliberately avoiding any further elaboration on the issue is he has a moment of intense self-doubt where he's like, huh, did she pick me to have this kid because she doesn't trust like she has like her father was like a whole situation um and so like she doesn't trust fathers to be around and be involved so she would rather have a dude who's like dependable but maybe not interested i mean the stuff with her dad i mean it probably has more to do with why she's having to ask a friend to mm-hmm. conceive a child with her yes than but, it necessarily does with anything that happens after she conceives that child. I don't know. Sh- sure. But he, before they actually conceive the kid, he is like crippled with this like r- realization that maybe she picked him because she knows that he will not attempt to be more of a father than she's comfortable with. Um, which is an interesting, like that, that goes back to that virtuosic, uh, confession of inadequacies that happens throughout this book um the other one of the other primary characters in his life is this little boy roberto who's in like third grade his family is undocumented i think from mexico though i'm not sure and he's like tutoring him and they're working on this like book that roberto wants to publish about brontosauruses Sure. Um, How do you feel about that? The book goes into the brontosaurus controversy, Andrew. <laughs> so the t- two of the chapters in this book are like inter, like in fiction texts. Like I said, chapter two is his story that got published in the New Yorker, which is also Ben Lerner's literal story that got published in the New Yorker. Uh, chapter six starts with Roberto's book about the brontosaurus. Um, which I think is fun. And the opening sentence is, Othniel Marsh was the paleontologist who in 1877 discovered a dinosaur called the Apatosaurus. Apatosaurus means deceptive lizard. This is a funny name since Marsh himself would be deceived about the Apatosaurus. (laughs) 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 Which is when he found a bunch of big Apatosaurus bones, didn't think they were an Apatosaurus, put the head of a Camarasaurus on it, and called it the Brontosaurus. And then for 80 years, people thought brontosauruses were super cool. Craig loves dinosaurs yeah, with all the the pureness <laughs> of a five-year-old who loves dinosaurs. It's true. I do. And we all... Like a couple weeks ago, he was get, he was planning to go see a, a dinosaur thing with somebody and it didn't work out. And he was like as sad about it as I've seen him about like... It was Anything? it was sad and it was like <laughs> what what was frustrating about that experience was that it was like it you wasn't were promised even, dinosaurs and it was it was it was taken away from you. Yes, and and I was more upset about other things, but certainly I was just straight bummed that I would not have dinosaurs in my day that day. Mm-hmm. Cuz I love them. <laughs> I don't like I have been interested in them before I was old enough to like declare an interest. You know what I mean? Sure. So, like, they're just part of my... Yeah, I think a lot of kids have that. Just most of them grow out of it. <laughs> <laughs> or I guess you're, like, really into trucks, and then you just, like, go into construction. Or, like, you work on a farm, maybe. Sure. You own a farm. I don't know. 
Um, I'm just thought, like the the number of five year olds who say they want to be a fireman when they grow up, and mm. the number who actually become firemen when they grow up is a similar similar proportion. Well, I think. Yeah, but I never said I was gonna do anything about dinosaurs. I never said I was gonna be a paleontologist. I never. You're said just gonna be an enthusiast. I was just gonna love them. I'll be in the chat. Asks what your favorite dinosaur is, and says. That hers is a Triceratops and asks if that one is still real. And as far as I know, yes, that one is real. Yes, so. I believe it is still real. There was a uh, there was a like scare a couple years ago where I think people weren't sure about the Triceratops. But yeah, they sure, the big out. Triceratops scare. Everybody yes. remembers that one. Um, my favorite is probably the... It's a tie-ish between the Pachycephalosaurus and the Parasaurolophus. I like them both. Hipster dinosaurs. The Pachy... <laughs> You've never heard of this one, but the, I like it the most. The Pachycephalosaurus <laughs> has like a really hard head, like a like a dome. Hey, like a dome that it would like ram. Instead of having horns, it would just like ram its head into stuff like a football helmet. And then the Parasaurolophus is like a giant like duck-billed hadrosaur that has a really long uh, like crest. And I think it's the Parasaurolophus that they have, uh, like the, like a a really good version of in the Chicago Field Museum or Field House or whatever it's called. Uh, but yeah, so those are my favorite dinosaurs. Anyway, Roberto also loves dinosaurs, and I love him. Um, Roberto is this you know this kid that Ben's been tutoring, and the first time you encounter him, uh, Roberto expresses his concerns about like global warming and about now he's like eight or nine and he's been like looking at this stuff on youtube and he's concerned about what's going to happen um that's the part of parenting i'm the least looking forward to if it ever happens is like how you just youtube and like i I know how it was on the internet when i was growing up and there's just so much more of it now i'm so i keep derailing this thing so let's let's just that's okay that's kind of what as you said before the this book is really interested in kind of deviating into like long periods of listening to other characters and then the author character like not really knowing what to do with that information. Um, One of the, I want to get back to Roberto in one second, but I don't want to forget to say this. Um, One of the really helpful reviews, I think it was the LA book review one talked about how it kind of short changes the, frustration of having this like young white ivy league dude like write about his super awesome book career Uh um it prevents that from taking over the book by like just putting him in situations where he listens to other people um many of whom are not like him so roberto is certainly one of them and i want to get to another one after we get after we talk about roberto but roberto is this little boy whose family uh is undocumented. So Roberto has this like nightmare and Andrew, you tell me if you're ready for parenthood after you hear about this nightmare. Here we okay. go. Um, <laughs> he's talking to, he's talking to Ben about uh, when global warming happens and the buildings freeze and they start falling down and he's like, yo, it's going to be fine. And, and then <laughs> Roberto says, and I'm worried that Joseph Coney's going to get me. He's like the guy from Africa in the YouTube video? Coney 2012? And he's like, yes. And Whoa. this is what he says. What happens in my bad dream is the buildings all freeze up after global warming makes an ice age and the prisons crack open too. And then all the killers get out through the cracks and come after us. And Joseph Coney comes after us. And we have to escape to San Salvador, but they have helicopters and night vision. And anyway, we don't have papers, so we can't get anywhere. What? I you like don't. that it's it's cold enough to crack buildings, but bad people can still get out and do stuff. Yes. And also, in a scenario where this is happening, the thing that most people are concerned about is appropriate documentation for immigration purposes. Well, he's an eight-year-old <laughs> who's concerned his, kids, his parents could no, get I, deported. No, I, I get it. I'm just like, if I was his... This doesn't scare me about parenting, because I would clearly explain why okay. the worries were stupid, and then... <laughs> The kid would stop worrying them. Sure. Okay. Which is how parenting works. That's exactly how it works. 
Um, meanwhile, Ben is like, I don't necessarily know. I just need you to promise not to worry about Joseph Coney anymore. Um, that's extremely period specific. It, yeah, there's a lot of, have. there's a lot of stuff like that. Um, and the, the other section with Roberto aside from the book that he writes is he takes him to the like history museum in New York to see the dinosaur skeletons and stuff. And he is overcome with this like fear that he's going to lose this kid in a crowd and that he really has to go to the bathroom, but he's like terrified to go pee and like loot and this kid will run away while he's peeing. Um, and all the while this is conflating with the idea that he might help Alex have this baby. So like, again, he is, he really wants to connect to other people and to help other people, but he is very preoccupied with the parts of himself that prevent him from doing so. Okay. Um, the other, I thought the other most affecting like character that he sits and listens to comes up in this passage. I think it's in chapter three or four where he is working at a food co-op. I don't really have a strong sense of how food co-ops work, Andrew, but I think they're like supermarkets that we all own. Like in a neighborhood. Sort of. I only, I'm only really aware of them through like parodies of them okay. on TV. <laughs> okay. So Sure. Um, the co-op is an interesting scene for Lerner where he gets to like unpack some of the macro issues that the book is bumping up against. So like there's one scene where he lets a guy who is in the Occupy protests like take a shower in his apartment. There's a couple other like timing as you kind of alluded to like very specific timing moments that like bump up against this book um and he kind of lets them in and then kind of just puts them out they're not explicitly about that but they're like in the world around it so the co-op is this thing where he i'm going to try and read a quote here um he's talking about people who participate in the co-op but also complain about it Complaining about the co-op indicated you weren't foolish enough to believe that belonging to it made you meaningfully less of a node in a capitalist network. <laughs> that you understood the co-op's population was largely made up of gentrifiers of one sort or another. And though I insulted it constantly, I didn't think the co-op was morally trivial. I liked having the money I spent on food and household goods go to an institution that shared labor, made it visible, and that you could usually trust to carry products that weren't the issue of openly evil conglomerates. The produce was largely free of poison. When a homeless shelter in the neighborhood burned down, we, at orientation they taught you to utilize the first person, first person plural while talking about the co-op, donated the money to rebuild it. So, like... Another thread of this book is, and it comes up when he's talking about other characters or talking about some of these scenes, is like his own daily hypocrisy of being a liberal, mostly like economically privileged white dude who is in a very diverse city like New York and is very aware of what he does and does not have and very aware of where all of the very good things he gets come from. Um, and there, the, the, in his mind limited ability he has to like change that quickly for the better, you know, does that make sense? Yeah, no, no. And I think that that's, that's a group that you and I both belong to a lot of times is like, we, we try in many ways to do, the least harmful thing or sure. like a, the the most helpful thing we can do but like when you're talking about stuff like gentrification you can't like i as a white man cannot live in a city and not take part in that process yep even though i think generally it sucks yes <laughs> like, well and like i can't uh, espouse the like i people should get to own homes i think like we could i don't know that i'm ready to like go all the way down and be like no one should own anything like i don't think i could go there just yet um but i also recognize that like me attempting to own a home is a very different process from someone who is not a white dude and like i occupy a space in the system that could be someone else's instead um 
And that's sort of what this is getting at. The the other weird, gross thing that Lerner points out is he identifies this kind of very hypocritical, not hypocritical, but like coded language around like food politics, which I don't think get enough discussion. He talks about like the the largely white people who are part of this food co-op talking about like pulling a kid out of a public school and putting them in a private school, not because the kids in the public school are like inherently bad or worse, but like they just, they, they just eat worse and they're like, they don't have the, like the things that they have access to actually make it harder for them to succeed in school. So I just had to get my kid out of there. And yeah, this, well, I mean, like, it, that's it's like all, a that's class, a whole, a, that's class a, as race discrimination is a thing that like he very incise like insightfully points out and then kind of just moves on from. He just like points well, it out and then just like ducks. And if and if you're living in a city like especially yeah. like Philadelphia and you say public versus private, like you can have that entire conversation and not mention race once at all, and the entire conversation is a hundred percent about race and economics and same thing with like food desert stuff and and yeah i mean like that's a a huge thing yeah in in our neighborhood that's happening right now is that the there's there's a particular guy who is like a big developer in the area and who like the most of the biggest tracts of housing and stuff that are going up are all are all backed by him in some way and so he for a couple years has been trying to get like zoning permits and whatever like i'm not going to pretend to like understand (laughs) it all but trying to get what he needs to build a grocery store in the area basically and on the one hand it absolutely like the closest proper grocery store to us is almost a mile away like it takes like probably like 15 20 minutes to walk there from here like it's walkable technically but not ideal and certainly not um, if you had like kids to worry about and stuff like that and the and the only stuff that's closer is, is the bodega style stuff so that you can get like soda and and little debbies and a few staples but they're yeah. like sometimes deli stuff but they're just not set up to be a well-stocked grocery no. store with like yeah. healthy options and, and all this, the stuff that we talk about trying to do so um yeah, so he's you know he's he's taking the absence of a grocery store in the area and trying to like use that to to um to get the political will built up to build one, but also the one that he would build would probably end up being some bougie Whole Foods yeah. kind of thing, and not to like say that that the grocery store you shop at isn't like inherently bad or stuff, but we're talking about like subtle coding. And so like the, the grocery store that would go up would not be designed to serve the people who are already living in this area. It would be designed to attract further gentrification and, and sell his fancy new developed houses basically. And, and so this book, I think actually the narrator does a pretty good job of, not in a learner the author does a good job of like letting this character know about that stuff know about how he is failing individual people or failing groups of people in that because of these systems and then not know what to do about it but not in a like a nihilistic well just screw it then way um but recognizing that like i should find a way and I should be able to like improve. I, I should be able to use like the resources that are my life to like improve people around me and help them. Um, but also, those same impulses lead me to like want my own kid, want my own career to be successful. And like, how do you balance that? Is that's one of the things that this book is saying when it's not doing plot stuff to answer your earlier question sure okay um but this character that he meets at the co-op this woman named noor i thought actually this will be one of the things i remember the most from this book she tells him a story about her family uh and this is another theme of like this whole like time travel reference stuff that happens in this book usually is like a metaphor for like okay 
am I the person who experienced this thing or not? When he's talking about the surgery that he might go under anesthesia for, he talks about like, am I actually then separating myself from the person who I would be if I could remember the pain of that surgery? Like, or am I this other person who, who forgot all that stuff? Sure. Um, so this woman, Noor, tells this story where she... Uh, he asks her, like, what kind of food she eats and, and stuff like that. And she says, oh, my growing up, my father made all sorts of Lebanese food. His family's in Beirut. Uh, oh, my mom is from Boston. Her parents are Russian Jews or whatever. And he's like, well, do you have more family in Lebanon? And she's like, let me tell you a story. And she was raised with her parents. And she, you know, takes up, uh, like, Air- Middle Eastern, like, politics and studies uh, kind of the Arab Spring and stuff like that. And her father dies. And then six months later, her mom is like, hey, I'm dating this white dude named Stephen who works at MIT. Hope that's okay. And she's like, eh, <laughs> that's fine. Uh, and Nor says that she's going to go study at Cairo for like, it's an uh, Arab American studies abroad program. And her mom's like, let me just tell you something quick before you go. And she's like, oh, crap, you're going to marry Stephen. I guess we'll be fine. I can deal with that. And she's like, well, actually, um, your father was not your father. You, uh, I was pregnant with someone else, but I loved your father. And uh, so he decided to raise you with me anyway, because the guy who got me pregnant didn't want to be involved. And so I needed to tell you that. And she's like, okay, weird, but fine. And then she's like, but I also need to tell you that the reason that I was so quickly involved with Steven is that's who your dad is. So then she is like, wait, but wait a second. I've devoted my life to Middle Eastern studies and Arab American politics and et cetera, et cetera, because that's who I thought I was and I care about those things. But now I don't think I have a claim to those things. And it's just this really moving character portrait that I respect Ben, the author, for like actually not inserting his character into it all. Like he just lets this woman kind of enter the story, tell this tale, and kind of bounce. Um, but it's just, I. She then follows it up with an anecdote of like a guy who had been in a big fight with his brother, calls his brother on the phone, and is like, I need to talk to you. He's like, okay, cool. And he rants and raves at him, gets all the stuff out on the table, and realizes the phone has been disconnected for like 10 minutes. <laughs> he calls his brother back, and his brother's like, yeah, I just heard you say you needed to say something important. What's up? And he doesn't say anything again. So this, like, the book is examining these scenarios where, like, a thing happened, but then it didn't happen. Have you ever had a breakup that didn't take, Andrew? ever yeah yeah like where yeah yeah like on the one hand you and that happens in this book also there's a breakup he's like uh ben is in this relationship with an artist named elena that he tries to break up with at one point and then it doesn't stick and it's like okay we did that we had that conversation but then we just moved on as if it didn't happen so sometimes you just need to like say a thing and get it out there. Sure. But not necessarily like follow through on it. I yeah. Guess. And and so like, are you the person who said that thing or not is, is a, is a part of this book. And that, that story about Nora is just going to stick with me because that resonates with a lot of other uh, like race issues that we're talking about today of like who is allowed to talk about what and who are like centering the right people to tell these stories. Um, and it's just uh, it's interesting. I just feel I feel like who's allowed to is not the sure that's fair best way to frame that stuff. It's just like talk about it, but always be aware of your position, like relative to those issues. Like I yeah, that's fair. Want, I want to be able to talk about like gentrification being bad, but also I need to be aware of my participation in the phenomenon and and how I benefit from it and how I am yeah whether I want to or not, like making it happen. Like just, it's a thing where you, you always should know where you stand and you always should be like, like don't 
don't be in a position to like snuff out other voices that are like more I don't want to say like more entitled to their opinion, but like whose opinions need to be like heard more often. Does or, that make sense? Or whose like, lived or whose lived experience more directly matches. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There you go. Um, yeah. So I think this like, and where does this fall with the the kind of this book spends a lot of time talking about art. I haven't really even covered the fact that like Elena, the woman he's sleeping with, ha- makes a career out of like making art that looks old. At one point, she opens a gallery of like stuff that's been recovered from floods and galleries that have accidents and that is like quote unquote worthless but now she's gonna like put it in a gallery as busted art and like give it value again um and that that all has to do with this i think these overarching themes of like who when you're creating something is it yours how much of it can you make up? How much of the terms are yours when you make something? Um, and I think also with the, like, I, I want to talk about the, like, Irene and Sandy stuff briefly. Um, this backdrop of, like, wider catastrophe or threat or just communal issue is one that the author is, like, struggling to deal with, like, if I am someone who writes that's intensely personal, if I'm someone who makes personal art, like that is about me, but how do I do that in a way that like actually benefits the collective? And that I read, read that quote that said like the first person plural, that's a recurring theme of the book. So like when he's talking about Irene and Sandy, he talks about how when you're walking down the street and I like, this is by no means comparable from a like impact point of view, but when there's a big snowstorm coming, you could talk to any stranger on the street about like, did you see enough milk at the grocery store? You got your shovel ready. Like, are you ready for the big one? Like there, there's this thing that happens where the normal, like, I don't need to talk to you. You're a stranger. And I just want to like walk by with my headphones on kind of thing just starts to go away when this sense of community takes over um is that a thing that you have recollection of because i know you were up in jersey city for sandy were you and irene you said like rightfully just like missed for the yeah, most part Sa- sandy it was it was while we were in new brunswick actually oh, which sorry. Yeah, for yeah, people yeah. who aren't familiar with new jersey geography is like central jersey that's right that's right so yeah, like Jersey City, Hoboken actually got some of the worst of that storm. Yeah, um, Hoboken got flooded really bad. Like they, they, it was pretty awful there, as I understand it. But um, yeah, like I, so the apartment complex we lived in ha- did not have power for almost a full week. Mm. Um, and so we had done, or I had, like Susanna's grandmother had just passed away and so she actually was out of town and so it's just me in our apartment oh that's right with with the cat and we had taken some precautions like we'd filled the tub like you're supposed to do with with water um we had a couple gallons of water in case we couldn't get any we had a little bit of like non-perishable stuff like the cat food yeah, situation yeah. was all fine um I just like I don't know I have a lot of a lot of experiences from that like nothing really bad just a lot of like stories but the thing I remember the most like viscerally in terms of shared experiences was a couple days after like my batteries and all my things were starting to go dead and I just need to like get out and have a hot meal somewhere like power had been restored in a lot of sections of the of the state but you know, there were, there were little pockets of people waiting to get power back for like eight, nine, yeah. 10 days. Um, so I drove to one of those, if you live in New Jersey, you know that like the New Jersey mall is a thing. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> malls across rural America are dying left and right. But the New Jersey mall <laughs> is an unshakable institution that will not be put away so easily. Sure. Um, so yeah, it's just like these big indoor shopping center mall things. And I drove up to one and I found one that looked open because the parking lot was full and I went in and, um, I ended up eating a burger at like a TGI Fridays. Um, 
but the thing I remember the most is, you know how in a lot of malls they have those little panels on the floor that you open them up and there's outlets in there? Yeah, yeah. Around every single one oh, of those man. were crowded people just like sitting on benches, sitting on the floor, <sighs> whatever, just with their phones plugged in, just like getting a fix, you That's know? Scary. Because, like, yeah. The power was out at home, like the internet was out at home. Um, hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. like my biggest my biggest sandy memory. Is Weird, just is people who people who needed juice for their devices, and I think this was before like the the portable battery had yeah, become sure. as much of a thing as it is now. And and one of the like um, it did not really affect us down here too much. At I all. came down to you Philadelphia down to, to stay out. with you yeah. for a couple nights once it was clear that the power was not just going to blink back on in a couple days. Um and. Why did I? Uh, one of the things that this book then does at the close of the book, so like it's wrapping up, the pregnancy is going to happen, and there's like a really neat moment where he like overlaps looking at a Doppler radar with over like looking at the uh, looking at the what's the test for to see the baby? What's that called? Ultrasound. Thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what's the test to see the baby? I just the word escaped me. <laughs> so, <laughs> Um, and she whiz, and uh, they're like walking through the city because they can't get a taxi cab or whatever. And they walk through enough of the city that you see on the one hand, like people going for a run and like hot dog stands, and the Upper West Side is totally fine. And then they like have to go past the financial district to get to a place where they can get to Brooklyn again. And, like, there's a bodega that has candles lit and the dude is selling bottles of water for 10 bucks because, like, that neighborhood is just screwed. So... Yeah, as I remember, like, Manhattan, there was a there was a certain level at yes. which the power stopped. Yes. And so the book, again, that tension between, like, okay, are we one big community? What if we were? That would be cool. Like, a big shared human experience but here are the multiple things that prevent that from happening. Here are the things that kind of cut in the way. Um, I know we're kind of getting loose. On, we're getting short on time, so I want to hit a few more things as we wrap up, if that's cool with you. Yeah, just, just blast through them. Great, blast through them. I referenced earlier the work of art, uh, The Clock by Christian Marclay. That is a cool thing that I will be looking up. It's not a thing I knew about before this book. It is a 24-hour video art installation that takes play- that takes clips from films and TV history where all the scenes like reference what time it is and it syncs it up to actual time. So like you go and you watch it and it's like coming up on midnight and then a bunch of scenes of like people waiting to be stayed from their execution show up or like it's five o'clock and a bunch of like scenes from movies where people are getting out of work start happening. I'm just, Um, I'm not interested in clock based art unless the clocks are melting. Okay. Just a classicist in that way. Fair enough. Um, (laughs) Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, And then the other thing, I just have a note, a thing in my notes about pretension question mark. So one of the things that, (laughs) Happens. See if this if I had read this, this would be, <laughs> this would be literally the whole episode would be pretension question mark. Um, there are parts of this book, as I said, that are texts that are like interfiction texts. There are long stretches of poetry in the uh, in the book. Some of it written by him. Some of it cribbed from other poets um, who I don't know, but I think they're real. Uh, but there's certainly a style of vocabulary that. Uh, learner likes to choose that I think it would be like fine if you encountered it in a poem but like just reads a little arch in a novel such as what some uh, three times in the book he references crying as quote lacrimal events again it's not the mic is not picking up the face that I'm making <laughs> but I just wanted to like I wanted to remark upon the fact that I was making a and face. And I, I think all of these things have to do with like the way in which people use language to distance themselves from emotion. But here you go. Um, there's another word he uses a bunch called, he uses co-construct. Um, both like literally when he's building a diorama with Roberto. And then he uses it in a larger sense about like the world being co-constructed by people or an experience being co-constructed. You could just use the word construct but he's like tacking it on there to make a point about 
interpersonal connections is fine but like if that's gonna bug you i get it um and he uses the word proprioception seven times that's your favorite dinosaur right it it is the one with the crest (laughs) on it um it's the sense of one's relative position oh excuse me the sense of the relative position of one's own parts of the body and strength of effort being employed in movement i think it's that kind of thing that like babies don't know where their fingers end kind of thing babies are just high babies are high all the time have the same thoughts as high people i think and something that is that the narrator is experiencing with his like his concerns about his body and the like uh the thing about his aortic valve also like lengthens some of his digits and stuff over time not in the course of the book but just like as he grew up um and that becomes a metaphor for like whether or not he is like in touch with the world around him and it's like I get it. That's cool. But also that word is like big and I tripped over it a couple of times and I had it's what it's it's been a while since I like just had to straight up be like what the heck is that word? And I it's mostly speaks to the like the types of fiction that I read, I guess, as opposed to like me bragging about my vocabulary. I'm not trying sure. to do that. Mm-hmm. Um but that's the kind of thing and some of the sentence structure as I said from reading that earlier quote could kind of like if you're not up for this type of book that's cool also books like this do tend to be a lot longer so like give it a shot um i will say that i i enjoyed it and i also got a uh um <laughs> obviously says it mostly speaks to him being a wordy mofo which is yeah that's true that's a valid reading of the <laughs> uh i want to give a shout out thing. to a couple reviews of the book that certainly helped process my feelings on it can i can i just yeah. preface this oh with yeah my favorite yes. so the wikipedia article for 1004 is not long no it's not the reset the reception section is actually is probably my most favorite thing i've read on wikipedia since like the waluigi article circa 2006 <laughs> Sure. Um, so reception, the critical reception of 1004 has been largely positive. Citation needed. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. Okay, sure. That's fine. Uh, I did find a couple reviews, though, that were largely positive, including... So you could add this citation in there. I you, should. It's the yeah. free encyclopedia. Anyone can edit. That's, you could fix it. Or true. any of our listeners could fix Thanks, it. Thanks, Wikimedia Foundation. Um, Hari Kunzru over at New York Times Book Review helped me understand kind of the Coke construct thing. Um, the LA Review of Books, that's a very glowing review that I cited earlier, does kind of unpack how he is both a like problematic navel gazing white dude and why the book succeeds in spite of that. Um, and then if you're looking for a review, that's a little less exciting, excited about it. You can check out the independent or huff post because they're both like, yeah, yeah, sure. This books. <laughs> yeah. Um, I liked a lot of the questions that it raised. And I think that it did a pretty good job of not answering them. Um, and again, I'm, uh, for a book that does not have ex- an explicit plot, I feel like it was the perfect length because it didn't. The one chapter I didn't really dig was when he goes to Texas on an artist retreat and like ends up at like a weird Boogie Nights style art party. Okay, like that's the I didn't really talk about it because it's my least favorite part of the book. So that's there. Yeah, I feel like like you're if it had been longer, we would not be talking so much about the ideas that the book yes. raised. Like that's that's most of what we talked about. And I think it's been a better episode <laughs> for than it that been yes. if I had if I had read it. But yeah, if it had been like two or three times the length that it is, I think we'd be talking a lot more about that. I, and it than would not would be, be about any given thing that happens. It would not be as successful of a book. I, I think as you pointed out, like how is this not just a book about not knowing what to write a book about? Uh, right. If it were longer, it would become that. Um, and it, it neatly skirts that I think. Um, yeah. It's like it's the line between writing a book about not knowing what to write a book about and successfully using a shortish book as a clearinghouse for a bunch of different like thoughts and ideas yeah. about stuff. Yeah. Like I think those are two different sides of a of a coin or maybe of like a die. <laughs> yeah. What's the probability what's of the probability are. of getting a crappy book? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh so if you have read this book and have feelings or you want to talk to us about uh 
Superstorm experiences or other books that you think have handled this type of stuff pretty well, you can hit us up at overduepod at gmail.com or twitter.com slash overduepod, facebook.com slash overduepod. As I said before, this episode... And this uh, stream, for some of you, would not have happened without our Patreon donors. So uh, I want to thank specifically folks who have joined us since the last bonus episode. That includes Megan, Allie, Ashley, Emily, Heather, Jordan, John, Antho, Florian, Tiffany, Grant, Melissa, Jake, Bridget, Jen, Rebecca, Brianna, and the rest of you as well. (laughs) Andrew, what else do people need to know? Um, people need to know about what else? I don't know. The iTunes, website. subscribe in iTunes, yeah. go to the website, overduepodcast.com. Uh, I just like, as we were setting up to record this, put our August book schedule up there on the website. It's been on Facebook for a little bit, but it's on the website now. Um, so for Monday's episode, as, as, as we're recording, this is the talented Mr. Ripley, after that, we do Bridge to Terabithia, then our live show on Anne of Green Gables. And um, the last book of the month is Dying of the Light by George R.R. R. Martin. Ooh. So get some of that George R.R. R. Martin action without having to dip into Song of Ice and Fire. Um, um, speaking of live shows, I think we just wanted to mention a couple real quickly to uh, so you guys would have some time to prepare. We're doing one in uh, Virginia in the general vicinity of, of D.C. So like D.C. folks, Baltimore folks, I think this is one you should be able to make it to, I hope. Um, and that will be in October. We're, we've, we know pretty much everything about that one at this point. So we'll start uh, promoting that one this week. Yep. And then um, sometime in the spring, we are planning to do one in Chicago. So like nothing about that is set in stone yet, but think like april or may probably yeah that will Um, be similar to our boston show where andrew and i just decide to go somewhere and do a podcast and that certainly would not be possible without the patreon support so like yeah patreon money paid for gas and tolls and and rental space that we stayed and and the place where we actually did the show and record and everything was really really great and we are you know we're we're at a level of um of income now i guess where we can we can afford to do that a couple times a year and it's pretty cool we're trying to bring the show to you yeah so that's the show thanks for tuning in if you were with us live and thanks for listening if you're listening now (laughs) yep that's how it goes okay everybody thank you for listening we'll be back with another bonus episode in next month yeah we're right? gonna do one in, in september, september actual september. real actual not like october november december september but real september calendar september um until then or until whenever i don't know try to be happy <laughs>